It's Monday, August 9th, the day that Richard Nixon resigned from office years ago. Anyway, from the Recount and iHeartRadio, this is the News Items Podcast, bringing you news analysis and interviews based on my newsletter, News Items. I'm John Ellis. Today, we have a conversation with Rita Singh, the author of Profiling Humans from Their Voice and one of the world's foremost experts in a field you will be hearing a lot more about. It's called voice profiling. Rita and her colleagues develop technology that can analyze voice signals and discern everything from the skeletal structure, age, and surroundings of the speaker to potentially their medical status and outlook. It's amazing work, and I spoke with her to learn more about how the technology works and how it's developing. We also spoke about her career and why she switched from studying voice recognition to voice profiling in 2014, how voice profiling technology could be used to recognize COVID-19, and the potentially dystopian implications of the technology that lawmakers will have to guard against as it evolves. Here we go. Rita, thank you very much for joining us today on the podcast. It's a pleasure to talk with you. John, thank you for having me uh, on this podcast, and it is a pleasure to be here as well from my side. Tell us, how did you get to, I guess you would call it, voice forensics? So when I came here to Carnegie Mellon in 1997, I was already working on computer speech recognition, making computers recognize the content of human speech better and better. But I had never really thought of looking into the voice signal for information about the speaker. But something happened in 2014. It's a very interesting story that changed that. And I literally dropped my work on computer speech recognition and moved (laughs) into the field of voice profiling. So the U.S. Coast Guard gets mayday calls on a routine basis. People go out at sea in boats, and when they are in distress, the protocol is to make a mayday call. And when they hear a mayday call, the Coast Guard sends out uh, boats and helicopters and specially trained personnel. They often have to scour hundreds of square miles of the ocean. Now, it so happens that you and I, can walk into a radio shack, buy a radio, and make such a call, even though there is no real emergency. So (laughs) some people take advantage of that. Back in 2014, there was this one guy who kept making hoax calls repeatedly. He made, I believe, over 10 different hoax calls. And I believe it cost the U.S. Coast Guard more than half a million dollars, all told to search for this guy. It was obvious from his recordings that it was the same person. So they gathered up all the recordings and for one reason or another, they ended up on my desk at Carnegie Mellon University. And the recordings came with a very simple request. Tell us what you can about this person. So I studied the recordings and I discovered that I was able to glean a lot of information that I didn't expect to be able to get from the voice recording. The speaker's height, weight, age, ethnicity, roughly where the speaker had grown up before five years of age, where the speaker was at the time of speaking, what kind of enclosure 
I found that the speaker was not even on a water body. And I was able to tell them a little about what kind of instrument the speaker was using to call and so on and so forth. So I sent all of this information to the Coast Guard. And three months later, a bunch of them came to Carnegie Mellon for a seminar and they wanted to see me. And so that was when I actually met them face to face. And and I said, you know, what happened to the information that I gave you? They said, well, we found the guy. And I asked, well, and? And they said, you were right on every count. <laughs> and that was when I actually realized that there was so much more that could be gleaned from the voice recording. There was so much information that I knew was there when I was looking for it, but I, there was no way I could actually gauge it accurately, even manually at the time. And I also realized that there wasn't enough research work that was focused on this problem of extracting bio-relevant information about a human from the recording. And so that was when I actually dropped my work on my research on computer speech recognition on that day and at that time. And I completely moved into this area of human profiling from voice. When you decided to move into the profiling, what did that entail? I mean, did you go to the head of the faculty at CMU and say, this is what I want to do? And they, they said, okay, or what happened? Every scientist, every professor, every researcher in, in academia, as far as I know, is free to do what they want. It's a flat structure, so there's no question of telling anyone or asking anyone. Or We just pretty much do what we think is relevant right. to the science at the time. So that was not an issue at all. Funding was certainly an issue because there wasn't already a body of work that could validate my claims. Right. And we decided that we wouldn't focus on publishing papers and, and trying to prove what we were saying. We would prove it by actually building a system that would do this. So we quickly built a voice profiling system, the world's first live voice profiling system, which was demonstrated at the World Economic Forum in 2018. And that system had two parts to it. One part was you could take a microphone, you could say something or read something on the screen, and it would give you a lot of information about yourself. It would give you information about your physical stature, your health status, your psychological state, and multiple other things. Even information about your attractiveness to others based on your on on really? your voice. Yeah, yeah, really. <laughs> we'll, get to, we'll get to that later. <laughs> we'll get to that. Okay, so that was one part of the system. It was a screen-based one. The other part was a virtual reality part where you could wear a headset, say something, and your face would get recreated in 3D and you could actually pick it up and examine it. And it was a demonstration of the science in its absolute infancy. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't, as you can imagine, perfect, but it was tried out by more than a thousand people in a space of two days. Wow. And it was surprising how well it worked there. It was filmed throughout by the media. And that was the point at which we started getting more funding. It was easier for us to get funding from that point on. That makes perfect sense, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so I speak, and you can essentially construct my face 
from my speaking without getting too technical for the listening audience. Explain how that works. So, well, let me, in order to explain that, I'm going to have to explain a little bit about how we produce sound when we speak. So here's what happens when we speak. Air comes out of our lungs and it passes through two membranes that are situated in our larynx. The larynx is the, you can think of it as the, it's the voice box that you can feel in your neck, in your Adam's apple. So air comes out of the lungs, goes through these vocal folds, and for some kinds of sounds, vowels, for example, your vocal folds vibrate. And the vibration of the vocal folds is very fine. It happens so that they vibrate, in your case, perhaps 110 times per second. In my case, over 200 times per second. That produces a little sound in your vocal cavities. Your vocal cavities are the cavities behind your nose, your nasal cavity, your oral cavity, and your pharyngeal cavity behind your mouth. That sound resonates in your chambers. And the sound itself is composed of many, many, many frequencies. Frequencies that range all the way from 50 hertz to 6,800 hertz. Some of those frequencies resonate in your vocal chambers. And the exact frequencies that resonate have a lot to do with the shape and the dimensions of your vocal chambers. So it's possible from an analysis of the resonant frequencies of your vocal chambers to deduce the dimensions and roughly the shape of your vocal chambers, right? Now, the shape and dimensions of your vocal chambers, they are defined by your skull structure and your skeletal structure. Now, there are other things that we can deduce from voice, your age, your ethnicity, your height, your BMI, right? Given all of that information and this information about roughly the shape of your skull, right? Mm -hmm. It's possible to gauge just how thin or fat you are, what your overall external appearance might be like. Think of the thought process of a forensic anthropologist. When they get bones of an animal or a human, they are roughly able to reconstruct the physical appearance of the animal or the human. Right. This is the same process, except it's done by a machine and through different means, through signal analysis. Right. So it's possible to do that. And so we can kind of roughly gauge the shape of your skull and your face and figure out what you look like roughly, especially on the lower part of your face. So you can actually, if you get the dimensions of the structure of the lower part of your face, you can always extend it to the upper part. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Rita Singh. Voice analysis isn't limited to modeling someone's physical appearance or catching bad guys who call the Coast Guard. There are also huge implications for medical diagnosis, right? Right. So I, you got that exactly right. Voice is a biomarker and carries biomarkers of myriad health conditions. There's a lot of uh, information about this in the medical literature and literature in more than like about more than 40 fields of uh, research. 
Lately, there have been reports of uh, biomarkers being associated with diseases that we had not thought might be affecting voice. Um, and that list is growing. If you think of any factor that influences the human mind or body, if there exists a biological pathway that connects that factor or that influence to the vocal production mechanism, then the signatures of that influence have to be in voice, right? There cannot but be an influence on voice. And if there is an influence on voice, then it cannot but be discoverable. It should be discoverable. So what I'm actually working on, that's the hypothesis I go by, the signatures of various many serious diseases appear in voice long before they appear uh, prominently enough physically for the disease to be diagnosed. Really? So, yeah. For example, the signatures of um, neurological diseases often appear in voice before they are clear, clear enough physically to be clinically diagnosed. And wow. We're talking about Parkinson's. We're talking about yeah. Alzheimer's. We're talking about many of the serious and deadly diseases out there. I am, as of now, studying cytogenetics. Don't ask me why, but I need to. <laughs> um, in well, let's to, ask you why. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I'm not sure if I can articulate that very well, but I'm trying to find the genetic basis for voice. I believe that there are certain genetic elements that drive uh, our voices. And if we could find those uh, and correlate those with other genetic elements that go with those, we might be able to do a better job of uh, reconstructing faces or and body structure or even uh, gauging different kinds of diseases or categories of diseases from voice. Um, we might be able to tell whether this person is um, more prone to getting Parkinson's or Alzheimer's later in life or not. I mean, it sounds preposterous, but you know what? Uh, any new science, I guess, does when it is proposed. So, and yes, um, I'm sticking my neck out here, but uh, I think it's going to be possible. This science would have enormous implications for healthcare, right? I mean, all across the United States, for instance, people who live in rural areas don't have access to high-quality medical care. But if they could talk to, you know, Hal and say, you know, you need to come in because it looks like you have this or that disease. I mean, it's a staggering. Right, right. The potential is enormous. And as the situation in the United States is luckily a, a lot better than in some countries. For example, I was in Rwanda a few years ago, and I learned that there is one doctor for every 400,000 people. Wow. And so people don't have, you know, forget about ready access to healthcare. There's no hope of getting proper healthcare uh, in Rwanda. But everyone there has a phone. Everyone in the world, I think, has a phone now, except uh, newborn children. So if people could just call into a machine once in a while, and if the machine, if there was something seriously going wrong with them, if the machine could just warn them, you have to see a doctor now. With a warning at the right time, lives could be saved, right? Right. 
in the United States, there are a lot of people who are living alone, disabled people, people who are living away from their elderly people living away from their children, people who are recovering from diseases, people who are suffering from diseases and they cannot move or may not be able to go to a healthcare facility as often as they should or they, they are required to. And there are lots of disabled people as well. So if, if they could monitor their health through their voice, even if there were no you know, real guarantees of 100% accuracy, if, if it were roughly giving them an idea about their health, in what direction their health is going, you know, uh, it would, I think, be very helpful to people. And this is what actually keeps me going at this point. I think the, the enormous potential of this technology in healthcare is completely worth working for. Right. And what about COVID, Rita? So when the pandemic happened um, in early 2020, I visited Israel and gave a talk at the first Israeli biometric meeting. And there was a suggestion that perhaps I could apply the science of voice profiling to detecting COVID. And that was when I started thinking about it. Um, the respiratory process is so important to voice production that there was 100% <laughs> certainty in my mind that it would be affecting voice. I just didn't mm -hmm. know how, right? So I read what I could and just put together a system that might initially just be looking for anomalies in the way the vocal folds vibrate as air comes out of the lungs. It could potentially... Um, diagnose? No, not it. no system now can diagnose COVID. And the reason why no system is able to do that is that in order for a, an automated system to make such a diagnosis, that system also has to rule out other conflicting conditions that may have the same effect on your voice. Right. But what the system can do is say for sure that you are for sure in need of being, uh, you know, of, of an investigation. Go to your doctor, get yourself checked for COVID. Or it can say there's no chance that you have COVID. Uh, and that would be incredibly useful for virtually everything, right? I mean, you go to Heathrow yes. Airport and you yeah. say, here's my clear bill of health, if you will. And so right. you're... Right. So it's taken so long. It's 2021 August. And there's a company in Chile, Merlin Inc., which is only now able to put out that system. I think in a month or two, the system will be out commercially in uh, Chile for self-testing. Really? And we've been working with them. We've been collaborating with them. And so their system has used our technology to reach a point where it can, with very high accuracy, more than 95%, greater than 95% accuracy, tell whether you are likely or not likely to have COVID. Wow. Right? Wow. It doesn't, It. I don't think even at this point it will ever be able to tell for sure that you have COVID. But right. certainly when it says you are likely to have COVID, it's time to go to the doctor. Right. Right. We're going to take another quick break and we'll be right back with voice profiling scientist Rita Singh. Hi, 
I wanted to ask you the flip side of this is the ability, obviously, if you have the ability to glean so much information about someone just through their voice, uh, it raises, I guess you would say, substantial issues regarding privacy. Um, tell us about that. What is your what is your view about, I guess, the future of privacy given given this science? <laughs> if there is a future of privacy, <laughs> it, it's cer- it's certainly true. Research such as this it invades human privacy. It, 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 it is going to create technologies that will invade human privacy. There is no question about it. Everyone is carrying a recording device of sorts with them nowadays. Right. right? Everyone has a cell phone. And the only way you can refuse the recording of your voice by third parties is to not speak at all. Because when you speak, you are likely to be recorded and there is nothing you can do about it. Right. So this is something that is going to be inadvertently taken from you. So yeah, it's going to be very invasive and we worry about it as researchers. We worry about it. Uh, It is not in our hands to stop it. The only way we can stop it is by not working on this science at all, which is not a pragmatic or practical thing to do, um, given its enormous potential. So I think the solution to that, that I and my colleagues would unanimously suggest is is for the lawmakers to take up the cause and to ensure that the privacy of the human voice is preserved legally in just the way as other things about them are preserved. They should be able to legally own their voice. Right, right. Well, Rita, thank you so much for doing this today. It was really a treat. Thank you, John. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to the News Items podcast. The podcast is based on my newsletter, which is available at newsitems.substack.com. News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre Bienname, Ali Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby, and our recording engineer was Simran Singh. See you next time. We didn't, by the way, get to uh, animals. I, I want to uh, send you my dog barking and stuff. Can you determine whether my dog is going to die at 9 or 12 or whatever? Oh, my gosh. No, I've not thought about that. If you want to be a billionaire, okay. Age of a dog. Medical condition of dogs, okay. If you build that technology, you will be richer than Bill Gates, basically, because human beings will spend any amount of money on their dogs. Okay, that's something to think about. It should be doable. It should be doable.